Chapter 9, verse 1 And he entered into a ship, and passed over, and came into his own city. Like Matthew 24, when he sees the temple for the last time, and he departs from it. That's a permanent departure here. He is departing from this town, because they didn't want to receive him. The Lord is a gentleman. Here and now, he wants to be your saviour. Revelation chapter 4, it says he stands at the door and knocks. If any man opens, he will come in and sup with you. But he won't impose himself on you. He wants to be your saviour here and now. If you take him as your saviour, he will come in and make his abode with you. If you reject him as your saviour, he will be your judge when you die and stand before him. But here, he's leaving this town, he's leaving these ungrateful, unbelieving Gentiles for the most part, and he's going to return to his own city, that being Capernaum. Two, and behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Only God himself can forgive your sins. This has been said repeatedly by so many Bible believers. And it has to be repeated time after time by this Bible believer. You can't be saved through your church attendance, through your receiving of the Eucharist, from going to the confession booths, by going on trips to visit Marian shrines, doing your penance, your deeds and your beads, that doesn't save you. Only he can forgive you of your sins. Son, be of good cheer. Jesus is about 32 here, 31 perhaps, and he's saying to this man, Son, in Isaiah 9, he's called the Eternal Father. He's not God the Father, he is God the Son, but here, he takes the spiritual parental attributes of being a father, as it were. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And a similar language also at 22, when he speaks to a woman and calls her daughter. But more on that when I get there. Three. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Why are they saying that? Because only God can forgive your sins. They knew perfectly well that for him to say, Your sins are forgiven, present tense, completely forgiven, meant that he was God. And it also meant that you didn't have to go to the temple. Once again, he's bypassing organized religion. On the one hand, he's upholding it because he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And on the other hand, he's working outside of organized religion. He gives the Jews 40 years from 30 to 70 AD to get their house in order. By 70 AD, Jerusalem is surrounded and the Jews are starved and burnt to death. The temple is destroyed. And that is the final judgment from God himself on the unbelieving Jews. By the death 
of the tester, that being Christ, a new covenant had been initiated. From 30 AD to 70 AD, it was 40 years, a generation. That was more than enough time for the Jews to realize that God himself had switched from one dispensation, from having one people, to having another people working in another area, working in a different way, through a different generation of people, that being the Gentiles. And once they got saved, they became one people. No more Jew, no more Gentile. The saved man or the saved woman. This man blasphemes. They think he's taking this on himself. He's claiming to do this miracle. He must be either mad or he must be God. And of course we go with the latter. For, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? He's omniscient. He can read your mind. He knows your heart. Being omniscient is one of the three attributes which proved he was deity. This is evidence in and of itself that he was very God and very man. Jesus knew their thoughts. Why think ye evil in your hearts? 5. For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? That's a tough question, because again, it undermines their authority. If he continued to do what he was doing, according to John 11, then in their mind, the Romans would come and take their authority from them and give it to him. And that would put all these men out of business as it were they were thinking in human terms they were focusing on their own well-being not on the glory of god but for him it was easy to say your sins are forgiven you off you go and sin no more but to them it was a bitter pill to swallow six but that ye may know that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins then saith he to the sick of the palsy arise take up thy bed and go unto thine house he had authority he had power as the son of man to do what he did during his time on the earth when he dies he says to the apostles whosoever sins you remit are remitted whosoever sins you attain are retained in other words if somebody hears the gospel believes it you can tell them they are now saved if somebody hears the gospel and doesn't believe it you can tell them they are still lost in their sins that commission to the apostles is vicariously given to all Christians. The apostles had the sign gifts, but the sign gifts died with the apostles. But the gospel continues on today through all saved men and women, but not all men and women have the same ministry. Women aren't called to be pastors, they're not called to be Bible teachers. Not all men are called to be elders or evangelists or teachers in a local assembly but all Christians are expected to be soul winners to be evangelists to be disciples of the Lord and to be ready at a moment's notice to share their faith if somebody was to ask them why they were saved 7 and he arose and departed to his house but when the multitude saw it they marveled and glorified God which had given such power unto men. That should have been the reaction from the Jewish leaders. But uh, 
as with all areas of organized religion, it's completely lost on the intellectual and captured and witnessed by the common man, the common woman. 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Here's a tax collector, a despised man, and he was a Jew. So he would have been the equivalent to a Jewish person in a German concentration camp that was working with the German administration. He would have been despised by his fellow countrymen, and yet the Lord called him, and he followed him. 10. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. They came to hear him, they came to be saved. This is a good scripture to show that the Lord was prepared to put himself out to meet people that wanted to hear him. But that doesn't mean that we go around looking to associate with unsavory people just to be like they are, just to be seeker friendly. These people were friends of Matthew, they were his associates, and they wanted to meet the Lord. And they came with Matthew to meet the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for the sinners, not the righteous. 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And unless you consider yourself a sinner, unless you see yourself as a filthy reprobate that deserves eternal hellfire, he didn't come for you. He didn't come for the self-righteous. He came for sinners like you and I. 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn, as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Just one thought from verse 14, when the disciples of John approached the Lord about why they fast, but his apostles don't. I wonder if this question was really uh, put to the Lord via the unbelieving Jewish leaders from 11, because it was a very small community, and John had his disciples who later became the Lord's Apostles, not all of them, but some of them. And these people would have known the Jewish leaders in the temple, and maybe, possibly, went to school with them. They may have had some education as well with the Jewish leaders, a primitive education, but nonetheless they would have known of these Jewish leaders. And maybe this is a form of contamination, this is a form of a little leaven,
leavening the lump, hence why we are told to separate, to come away from unruly, unsavory, uh, unholy people, because there's a slight connotation here, there's a slight feeling that this question has something behind it. John testified that he was the Messiah, he was the Lamb of God. And although the question in of itself is harmless, it's not uh, an offensive question to ask, it just makes me wonder if verse 11 had anything to do with it, or, or verse 3 when he's accused of blasphemy. But either way, the, the bridegroom is present on the earth, and there's no reason for them to mourn, there's no reason for them to fast. But when he dies, then they will mourn they will weep until he is resurrected and breathes on them and gives them the anointing which they need to go on and turn the world upside down 18 while he spake these things unto them behold there came a certain ruler and worshipped him saying my daughter is even now dead but come and lay thy hand upon her and she shall live and Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman, which was diseased, with an issue of blood twelve years, came behind him, and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. She thought just to touch his garment would heal her. What healed her was her faith in him. She came to him to be healed. And he healed her because she came to be healed. He's on his way to heal the girl, which is found in Mark 5. The young girl, she's about 12 years old. And you find the term Talithakumi, which is Aramaic. And as I say, most of the New Testament was written in Greek with some Hebrew and some Aramaic. But 99% of the New Testament was written in Greek. Also, this lady has waited 12 years to be healed. And the girl that he's going to heal is 12 years. Interesting. Two 12s make 24. The 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 apostles... It doesn't have to mean anything, the two twelves. It could be just a coincidence. But my feeling is that it's in here for a purpose. As I say, 12 years she's sick. And the girl from Mark 5 is also 12 years old. And she touches him. He heals her. And he calls her daughter. Like uh, the expression son found in the second verse here. She's called daughter. The eternal father. Again, a spiritual term to denote his parental love for those that believe on him to those that are going to be saved 23 and when jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise he said unto them give place for the maid is not dead but sleepeth and they laughed him to scorn these scriptures are quite troubling really to read sometimes to think why would these people laugh him to scorn what sort of audacity do these people have? They've heard of his miracles, they've seen his work, they've seen people that have been dead raised to life, and yet they laugh him to scorn. 
not the young child's parents, but the wider community, those that were mourning, like the people that were mourning for Lazarus in John 11. And it says that the Lord wept because there was doubt, there was grief. But they should have had faith that the Lord would resurrect the righteous to have everlasting life. But they became a little agnostic, a little unbelieving. 25. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose, and the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See, that no man know it. This part of the Lord's ministry is quite simple. He's not looking for a crowd to follow him. He's not yet ready to be crowned king. He's healing those that want to be healed. He has compassion on those who are sick, who are struggling. He understands our infirmities, but he's not wanting to be publicly proclaimed as king. That won't happen until Palm Sunday. Hence why he says, don't go and tell everybody what's happened. Just rejoice in the fact that you are now healed. 31. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. That's the first reference to the unpardonable sin, which will be expounded on a little further in the twelfth chapter. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Those that wanted to be healed were healed and for three and a half years sickness was banished almost from Israel. The great miracle maker. No hospital no surgeons, no physicians could ever do what he did. And he's healing all those that wanted to be healed, thousands upon thousands. Also, this reference to a house, which has been cited a few times now, uh, found in 28 here, was quite probably Peter's house. Peter was, I believe, the oldest of the apostles. He's a married man with children, and he obviously had room for the Lord to stay with him. I don't think the Lord had his own house, but uh, I think this expression, the house, is Peter's house. 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad, as sheep having no shepherd. Just one footnote from 36. If you believe the Calvinist understanding of the nature of man, and the character of God, and that God hates all of the non-elect, and only loves the elect, then this type of verse is problematic for you, because it shows the Lord loving the multitude, which for the most part weren't saved, which for the most part were calling for his blood, 
and even saying, let his blood be on our children. And yet he still loves them. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So we, as Bible believers, need to be so careful not to follow a theological system and end up adopting that particular system that God just loves the elect and hates all of the non-elect. That's very dangerous thinking, and I put to you that it slanders the character of God. 37. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Why say that? Why teach the apostles to pray for more faithful people to be raised up to go out and reach the lost if he hates all of the non-elect if he's already chosen the elect it doesn't really make any sense and this is the problem when men try to intellectualize the sovereignty of God with the free will of man this is the dangers really of trying to approach the scriptures with our finite minds it's almost as dangerous as letterism which I've already discussed. But here the disciples were told to pray to the Lord of the harvest that more faithful laborers would be raised up. And that's something we can still do to this day. We can still pray that the Lord would raise up faithful men and faithful women to do great things for him. Prayer is still incredibly important. There is power in prayer. But uh, like all of these things, it needs to be done regularly it needs to be done in faith with sincerity and also with sin confessed pre getting into a pattern of prayer in other words don't come to the Lord praying for a B and C if there's unconfessed sin in your life confess the sin forsake it and then practice a strong prayer life with the Lord